Hello, this is Christian Bush, and welcome to episode four, A New Hope, of Geeking Out, my new podcast. Every episode is a new person talking about what they're obsessed with that has nothing to do with their job. The only requirement is that they're totally geeking out on it and they want to talk about it. From revolving restaurants to green tea Kit Kats, from Homestar Runner to custom airbrush license plates, from your favorite vacation location to collecting old typewriters, tell me about what you love, why you love it, how you got into it, and what makes it awesome. Every episode's presented in three chapters. Chapter one, my guest and I talk about what they're obsessed with. Chapter two is a game I call Trajan, where my guest and I turn each other on to one thing that we've discovered. And chapter three closes the show with me talking about music that I'm currently geeking out on and why. I believe that curiosity is contagious and the life is better with a soundtrack. So let's go. Chapter one. Today's guest is Callie Curry the Academy Award-winning screenwriter of Thelma and Louise, who has also directed movies like Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood and Mad Money. Most recently, she created the hit formerly ABC, now CMT Hulu television drama, Nashville. Nashville's wrapping up its final season, and I'm so excited to have one of its stars, Claire Bowen, who plays Scarlett, joining me and Sugarland on the road this summer. Callie has come over to my place in Nashville in the afternoon, and the two of us are sitting down at my kitchen table. She's brought with her a stack of cookbooks, and you can hear us paging through them while we're talking. All right, uh, I'm here with Callie Curry. Hi, Hi. Callie. Hi. Thank you for being here on my wonderful gigantic podcast thank you for asking me there's nowhere else i'd rather be (laughs) um so uh the rules may have or may not have been explained to you but i'll explain them again um what i'm interested in is what you're geeking out on right now what you're totally into what you're excited about that has nothing to do with your job right yeah so uh the first thing you're gonna have to do is explain your job well my job is um as a producer and a writer and a director for the television show Nashville on the beautiful CMT network. It's a pretty uh, all-inclusive job. Yeah, it keeps me very busy. And then I have other projects on the side. So. And have you done this most of your life? Is this, well, is, is this most your, of, this most your big my, thing? Most of my adult life. I, wrote my, I didn't write my first script until I was in my early 30s. But that was Thelma and Louise, so I kind of didn't have a... There was no going back from that. That was your first one? That was my first one. Wow, that's super cool. Well, on the one hand. On the other hand, it would have been nice to build up to it a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) But once I wrote that, you know, I won an Academy Award and a whole bunch of other stuff, which I can tell you was the last thing in the universe that I could have imagined happening the first time I sat down to write. And so I guess I just looked at it as I had been kind of searching for so long to figure out what my calling was that that just seemed like, well, this must be the answer. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you into right now? What I am into and what I am doing when, whenever somebody is not looking at me or I'm not performing my job is I am either 
reading recipes or creating recipes in my head or looking at pictures of food or planning a menu that maybe someday I'll actually have time to cook. It's, I think about food almost all the time. And sometimes when I'm really freaking out at work, I go in my office, I close the door, and I just go to like my favorite cooking websites. And I just go away, and I watch videos of people making souffles <laughs> and making pastry dough and all kinds of other things. And I just stay there. And then when I've calmed down enough, I can go back out and pick it up where I left off. And the thing I love about Nashville is since I've moved here I've been to a couple dinner parties and I leave with cookbooks of people going here you need to look at these they have the same thing I'm not alone you know just just take them home and just just read them just go through them you can give it back whenever and so that's been happening and I just thought wow I thought it was just me I'll be over at someone's house and I see cookbooks and it's really hard for me to remember that I'm supposed to be engaging with somebody because I can just take the cookbook and go sit down and just go just all the way through it. it. Yeah. And I love old cookbooks. Like I go to antique stores and things like that and look for the old, like junior league or charity league or church cookbooks that have been put together by everybody just giving recipes. And they're hilarious, first of all, because it's <laughs> stuff that you would just go, how did they think of that? And who in their right mind would eat that? <laughs> But like what? It's just fun. Like, well, like, I mean, you can almost like I saw something. I opened this one randomly today, and I just saw something called chocolate mayonnaise, and I oh was like, gosh. "Yeah, no, I won't." I'm, oh, that's I won't terrible! Have any, any desire to try that at all? That's the opposite of like a Reese's peanut butter cup, right? And it's <laughs> two and things it's I like, would never want to put together. Exactly. <laughs> it's or like quick fake charcoal steak, like. I don't even need to read that one because I know I'm not going to be having that. But just the fact that somebody has done this whole thing. Of how to do it. And, and like, this is the Nashville Seasons one, which is, I'm sure, probably still. That's a junior league. Yeah, it's a junior league. Um, but it's an old one. They're great. And I, the southern ones, for me, are the best. And I have friends that know that I'm into this now. So I have them from everywhere. I have... Amish ones and you know Puget Sound ones and Tahitian ones and you know just all these. <laughs> well, how, how did this cookbooks. start? You know, do you I, remember? I started cooking when I was little, like I really loved it. I my mom was a really excellent cook, and I remember we had these Time Life cookbooks, and they had these beautiful pictures on the front of each one, and they came in a series, and. I just couldn't take my eyes off of them. And so I would go through them. And then we had these really old cookbooks, which I still have. I can't remember where they're from. It was volumes one and two. And, you know, I mean, it had recipes for fudge. And I used to make like this anise candy when I was a kid that was this red hard candy that I just was like, you know, I just did it in my spare time. I don't know why. Do you feel more calm when you cook? Yes, I I do. It's like I feel completely engaged when I'm cooking. Like everything's fine. I'm happy. And I just have a real sense of well-being when I'm doing it. I love it that it's also natural for you. You know, I often think that if I didn't end up doing 
what I'm doing now, that it would have been great had I figured out that this whole thing was going to happen with everybody being chefs and knowing, you know, with our society being as as food-obsessed as it is, that I probably would have gone into that, you know. But at the time, I just didn't think of it. But the other day, like Julia Child came on, and, you know, it had been on PBS, and and then this old Julia Child show, show came on with Baking with Julia, and they were making gingerbreads, and I just was gone for like I don't even remember. <laughs> I just was sucked in. I could watch a million of them. I mean, That's I don't amazing. watch the cooking shows very much anymore because they're all competitive, and I don't really enjoy that. Right. I I don't really want to kind of experience other people's anxieties, and it, <laughs> I find those incredibly anxiety provoking. So the old cooking shows, though, where they just show you how to make stuff. I just, I can watch them all day long. So somebody's listening right now and they're interested in getting into this. How would you start them? You know, there's some really good, Mark Bittman has great cookbooks for people who are just beginning. And they have hundreds of recipes in it, but they're very basic. And... I've given that cookbook to a lot of people who want to cook but say they don't know anything about it because he he's, works for the New York Times, but he he's just another one of those people that just makes everything look so simple. And it's all very fresh and easy, and there's no like monumental challenges in it. And it's great, you know, and it's everything. I mean, it's like, every kind of food you've ever heard of there's hmm. a, there's some recipe for it and so i i usually start people there but the other thing i do is just like when you eat something that you really like figure out what's in it you know like really try to figure out if you could duplicate it i do that all the time i just try to taste everything in it as much as i can and then next time i'm cooking try to figure out how they did it yeah so, uh, is are there, do you feel like the great recipes are like great magic tricks? Like the magicians keep them hidden? Well, or you know, it's funny. Do they, is it a culture of sharing? I think it's a culture of sharing. I mean, I think for, for as many cookbooks as there are, aside from it being a money-making enterprise, I think, you know, there's a generosity about giving people food, making it for them, and then feeding them that is, that's at the end of the day, the part of it that's so beautiful. I mean, I, I use it as, you know, a, a, a sanctuary and a relief. But when I'm cooking for people, the whole time I'm thinking, this is going to go in their bodies and it's going to become part of them for, you know what I mean? And so I always had this joke whenever I cook a big thing, you know, I go, do me a favor eat it really slowly and just see if you can taste the love, you know? Because <laughs> It is a way for me to show people that I love them, you know? And so, I, I mean, I put a lot into it. Have you, have you gotten to the point where you take a day off just to cook? Well, I'll take a whole day. If I'm going to have people over, I'll, I will start two days before, just thinking wow. about it and trying to figure out what they would like and 
kind of try to imagine the experience of us all being together eating it. The thing that's kind of strange is when I ha- when I do that, by the time I sit down, I can't taste anything anymore. So I don't even care if it's, you know what I mean? Like, you, don't, you don't judge yourself on the outcome? Well, I I kind of watch them. Like I, I want to see them enjoying it more than I care if I enjoy it myself. Tell uh, me a couple of the strangest things you've made, or at least the, like, the furthest out there things like you've you looked at it and you're like this has a incredible level of difficulty i'm going to try to stick the landing i try not to think of anything that's too difficult mm-hmm. like i try not to think that there's anything that i just can't make even no matter how many times i've been proven wrong um when i was a kid i don't know where i saw it but i saw a baked alaska and i was like i'm making a baked alaska and I made one for, my mom was having a dinner party. My parents were having a dinner party. And I made this baked Alaska that had was in the shape of a mountain. And it had like a little eggshell in the top with kirsch poured in it, you know. And so you would pour it in and then light it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I cook breakfast. Right. That's the only thing I cook. Do you have a breakfast food that you would recommend, like, that I learn how to cook? Well... Yes. I mean, you know, any of the frittatas. I like frittatas that have, like, sausage and stuff like that yeah. in them. You know what I mean? And they're really easy. Spinach. I mean, it's Yeah. You can actually just put anything in it you want and just bake it. It's so it's simple. But the other thing I like making is, like, German apple pancakes and things like Whoa. that. Or, like, Talk a, to me. this baked pear pancake. So you... Basically, just make a batter, and while you're making it, you you cut up your pears, and you just put it in the oven, and it just kind of puffs up, and one side of it's brown from the pan, and the other side is kind of brown from the top, and then you just kind of flip it out of the pan when it's done, and put powdered sugar on it, and it's so good. It's just ridiculous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. When are you going to make a cookbook? You know... I, I don't know. I, I mean, I write down stuff all the time, but I mean, at this point, I just feel like me doing a cookbook is almost derivative. There's so many, I take from so many sources. I'd have to really sit down and think about how to narrow it down because it would be all over the place. Hmm. Like my grandmother was Lebanese and she used to make this thing that when I was a kid, I loved so much. And it was kusa. It was stuffed squash with rice and lamb. And I loved it. I absolutely, I mean, it was like, I don't know, it was some kind of magic potion to me. Like when I ate it, I would just have these like, oh, that's so good. (laughs) And I hadn't had it in years because she died many years ago. And I just, I don't know why, I never thought to make it. And then I thought to make it, and I did. And it was so good. I couldn't believe it. And I was so happy that I was able to just kind of like remember what she did to recreate it, you know. But the hard thing that I couldn't recreate, she made what she called Syrian bread. When my mom passed away, we were going through everything. I found this recipe box and I started going through the recipe box and the recipe was in there. Oh my God. And so I have it just like set aside to when I can like really really do it really do it because I am I as much as I like to not anticipate failure she had been doing it since she was a child and so she made it look so easy 
but I think there might be a little, <laughs> a little bit of, there, I need some margin for error there. But <laughs> <laughs> they almost feel like incantations or something. Yeah. Like, Making these recipes are a little bit like spells. Yeah. Well, it really reconnects you to the person. Whoever like, it was. Yeah, that, whoever that it was it. that made it for you in the first time. My mom used to make this this Provençal beef stew that is, I don't know, it's again, it's one of those things that my family has it all the time. And, and I served it to several friends because it's something you can just put in the oven it's braises for hours and it comes out and you you just have it with french bread and salad and everybody thinks you're a genius it's so good (laughs) and i used to have friends call up and ask me when i was going to make that again or if i was thinking of making that (laughs) (laughs) trying to like push you in the right direction like maybe you made that tonight and i came over yeah and so I do, you know, I do that. And then other people would ask me when I was making fried chicken again, because that's something that I, you know, when I was living out in L.A., I could really, I could really charm them with that. No, because, yeah. you know, good fried chicken isn't laying around all over the place out there like it is here. No, I bet. I have, I have one recipe that was my mom's for a strawberry chiffon pie. And it's just like, when the strawberries are good, you make this pie, and... It is the essence of strawberry. It's so light, and it's just like getting hit in the face with strawberries. It's so good. And whenever I give somebody the recipe at the end, I always put serves one, because I've eaten the whole pie myself (laughs) many times, a little bit at a time, but I know nobody's touched it but me, and it's gone. So It's the name of your cookbook. There's that. Serves one. Serves one. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 2. In every episode of Geekin' Out, I see if I can trade one thing I've discovered with one thing that my guest has discovered. A friendly exchange. I call it Trade This is a part of the podcast that I call Trade I will trade you one, turn you on to one thing that I'm into kind of this week uh, in exchange for one thing that you're into this week. All right? And I will go first. That will give you enough time. To think this through, because I've just put you on the spot. Yes, I feel terrible okay. on the spot. Um, my dear friend um, uh, in Atlanta and my assistant, um, she has been uh, exercising a lot recently. And for her, her story is that her the exercise is very boring. So she has taken to mowing her lawn um, as her form of exercise with a push mower, old-timey push mower. And... Um, to the point where she's now learned how to tune up the mower and, and you know, had the guys come over and, like, wow. fix her blades and everything. And what she loves about it is that she gets to push this mower around kind of in the Georgia heat. And she sweats. And it, it she gets a whole lot of aerobic exercise. And I think it <laughs> satisfies her. Um, uh, I'm sure she's not diagnosed, but her, like, right. casual OCD. Right. Right? Of trying to keep I the line totally straight. You know that. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and... Now she ran out of just mowing her own lawn over and over again, started mowing the neighbor's lawn, oh, and then just anybody's lawn, like not for money, but like the angel lawn wow. mowing moment. And um, so she has been really sore in her shoulders. So the other day she showed up um, at my house and she had this massager. And uh, I, you know, you see these things like on in the airports at Brookstone or whatever. Right. You know, you sit in the chair and it makes you feel awesome. But you think to yourself, I never have enough money for that. Right. Well, I. F- 
she brought one over and it kind of goes on your neck and you put your hands if you can imagine this you put your hands through the the, the that put tension on mm-hmm. the the edges that pull the thing into your neck and it heats up and I brought one here <laughs> to show you today because um when I put this on like four days ago I just about lost my mind here it is here's the box and I wish, you know, I'm not sponsored by these people, so we're just saying Naturalico, N-A-T-U-R-A-L-I-C-O, 3D Neck and Shoulder Massager. All right? I'm getting that. You, you need this in your life. I'm, I definitely do. Had, had I bought two, I would just give you one of these here. But I, or I'm, you would have found one missing. I would. <laughs> the, the other cool thing that I can't wait is... Um, because we're in Nashville right now, I'm going to be driving back to Atlanta, and it has an adapter for the car. Oh, God. That's so nice. Naturalico. N-A-T-U-R-A-L-I-C-O. This thing is for real. 3D neck and shoulder massage. I don't know why the 3D needs to be in there. I don't either. But if you can imagine... Um, anyway, whenever no. we put this podcast out, I'll put this up on the yeah. website so you can see what it is. So you, I'm ordering one. In fact, I might do it right now. Here it is. You, uh, I got it. I got mine on Amazon. That's what I was just gonna do. <laughs> All right. Now, I don't know. I mean, I can't. It could be anything. It could be like. Um, All right, I'll tell a, you. A, like a show I should watch, or a. Um, uh, can't be a food I can eat because okay. that's that's cheating. That's, right. That's what you do already. Right. All right. Well, there's one thing that I think is the most brilliant invention so far this year for me. The bandolier. What? The bandolier. It's called a bandolier, and it's for your phone, and it's on this strap. Your phone's around your neck. Yeah. You kind of wear it across your chest if you want, or over your shoulder, or in any case, it's got a strap on it that it's with you at all times. It's got this little card holder for your credit cards and money and stuff like that. It's like a phone purse? It's like a phone purse. And... (laughs) And every time I'm out with it on, and I forget, like I have, it has to go with every outfit because I, I'm never without it. And every time I'm out, some woman comes over to me and goes, oh my God, where did you get that? And I feel like at this point I should like have stock in the company. Because it, <laughs> where I, did you get I've, it? So, I got it online. The company's called Bandolier. I've never seen them in stores so you have to go to bandolier.com and order it. And they're not I-E-R, cheap. right? Yeah. They're not inexpensive, but they are so much less expensive than replacing your phone after it drops into the toilet <laughs> two days in a row, which is what happened to cause me <laughs> to have this problem that needed to be solved immediately. And a friend showed up with one. She's like, this is the greatest thing. you got to have it here. Take this. And I did, and it's like, I can't live without it. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I accept. All right. I don't know if they make one for men, but I can, I'll, I'll, sure I'll make it, I can rock do. it. Yeah. I don't have a yeah. problem with man style. I, exactly. You know, if you're man enough, you can wear anything. Anything's better than a fanny pack for me. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Callie, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Chapter 3, Me Geeking Out on Music. This week, the answer to an age-old question, what is a music producer? What do they do? Is this actually a real job or did someone make it up? 
Is that different than a movie producer? Is this a job for someone who wears suits or does budgets or conducts an orchestra? Callie Curry is actually married to one of the most influential American music producers, T-Bone Burnett. The job description of a music producer is completely unwritten. I would simply describe the music producer as the collaborator who helps the recording artist record. Their knowledge and skills combine with the knowledge and the skills of the artist in a unique way, and that combination becomes the essence of the fingerprint of the recording. Many times as a producer myself, my responsibilities have included picking the musicians, picking or writing the songs, arranging or rearranging a song, helping the artist focus on telling their story, guiding what songs sound like, what instruments should be played, what an album should be titled, putting the songs in the right order, keeping the artist on track, keeping the record label on track, creating an atmosphere that everyone feels inspired to create and record in. But overall, for me, it's the delicate balance between pushing everyone to reach for creative spaces they haven't been in before, while making sure the recording is as solid as it can be. As a teenager and, and through my early 20s, um, I circled around the sounds that were really inspiring me, and I listened to and consumed an incredible amount of music. And while I listened, I read the liner notes, and I asked myself many times, well, how are these things connected that I like? And one of the things I noticed was the name of the producer. Here is how T-Bone Burnett changed my life. The first thing I really heard of T-Bones that I knew was actually T-Bones was this uh, album by Elvis Costello called King of America. When I heard this, I immediately went and started buying Elvis Costello records. And as I dug, none of the other albums sounded like this. So I started to read the liner notes and found out that T-Bone Burnett was a name on there. In the same year, I had heard a song by Robbie Robertson, and it had might have been out earlier, that had a voice in it, a guest voice, that I didn't know. And as I chased down the voice, I found out that the voice belonged to a member of a band called the Bodines. When I bought the Bodines album, at the bottom of the liner notes, I noticed it was produced by T-Bone Burnett. Suddenly, I thought to myself, I really have an idea of what I like. And I liked a lot of things. But really what I liked about these albums is their combination of acoustic instruments and power rock. I loved the idea that a song could exist with really strong rhythm and along with acoustic instruments. I'm from the mountains of East Tennessee. I grew up on acoustic instruments, but I was young and I loved the power of rhythm. So fast forward to 1992, where I, all of that information I had processed into starting a band, many bands, but this particular one was with Andrew Hira, my friend, and it was called Billy Pilgrim. And we had made an album that was very strongly rooted in rhythm and very strongly rooted in acoustic instruments, much like I learned from T-Bone. During the year that we had recorded it, we had gotten a record deal with Atlantic Records, and they had very, very wisely asked us to go and, and remix and remake the record. But during that year, 
this came out. Suddenly, I had heard sounds that we were also making. So I sat on the floor of my apartment in Atlanta, and I almost half cried over the fact that they had beat us to the punch. And then also in other half of joy of how much I loved this record. So I dug there in through the liner notes and noticed the producer was T-Bone Burnett. As soon as that happened, I realized that I had moved from being a person who's casually noticing his name to a person who was absolutely a fan of what he was doing. Not long after, Andrew and I made our next record for Atlantic. Immediately, this came out. Again, I sat in my living room with another CD, opened up, and the the liner notes strung across the sofa, and I noticed again T-Bone Burnett. So I thought to myself, that guy's awesome. I'm going to follow him and his career, no matter kind of where it goes. A number of years later, as Billy Pilgrim slowed down, I heard this. In constant sorrow all through his days, I am a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my So then I decided maybe country music was the way to go (laughs) and started a country band. I would say this, uh, T-Bone sits as an example for me as a creator, as an artist, as a producer, and as a songwriter. And on top of that, also a musician. He played guitar on many, many of these records. I've absorbed T-Bone's attitude and treatment of acoustic instruments, his guitar sounds that I heard on records that he made, where drums matter, where they don't, how important the singer is, how important the song is. But mostly I hear in his work, the care and the space I feel he gives to the emotion of a song. Angry songs have angry recordings and driving songs sound like they have rolling wheels underneath them. Songs about healing, in fact, actually kind of put a salve on my hurt when I hear them. It's a joy to listen to the way that he hears the world around him. I barely know him, but I feel like I've heard his thoughts for a long, long time. So what is a music producer? Maybe they're guides, maybe they're storytellers, babysitters, magicians, (laughs) but they are essential to the art of making recorded music. So next time you hear something you love, dig around a little, see who produced it. You may find a rabbit hole that you can jump down and discover more music that you love. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Geeking Out, and we are already hard at work on the next one. Are you obsessed with something amazing? Want to tell us about it? Write to us at geekingoutwithkb at gmail.com, and you might be a guest on an upcoming episode. Come find out more about me and this podcast at christianbush.com. Christian with a K, people. Follow me at Christian Bush on Twitter, Christian Bush on Instagram, Christian Bush on Facebook, and Christian M. Bush on Snapchat. Thanks to Bobby Bones for the opportunity to make this podcast, Brandon Bush for making the soundtrack and assembling the pieces, Tom Tapley for audio wizardry, and Whitney Pastrick for being a great producer and making this whole thing possible. This is Christian Bush, geeking out. Thank you for listening.